Hello, I am Dr. David Clark, and once again, I would like to thank you for tuning in to this podcast called Theology and Identity. This is my seventh episode, and over the past couple of months, I've been learning a lot about how this process of podcasting works. Overall, I've had a good response to the program, and I do plan to keep it going. My kids tell me that I need to be more conversational, and they've even suggested that perhaps I should bring my wife into the studio and pretend that I'm talking to her. Now, I've thought about that, and I don't think she would agree. But in the future, I do want to have guests come in for interviews, and maybe I can persuade my lovely wife to come in at that time. Another thing I've learned is that listeners are attracted to a catchy or perhaps even a controversial title. Now, of course, I can't always deliver on this because I need to be true to the content of the episode. And this is not always controversial or even shocking. But when I can, I'll certainly try to put an intriguing twist on the episode title. So the title of this episode is a question. Is one of the Bible's greatest promises being missed in translation? And of course, I believe that in part it is. There's a very significant promise found in the Old Testament that was given to King David. The Hebrew text around this promise makes it very clear that this is one of the most important words that God ever spoke to a human being. But unfortunately, our English translations fail to capture this important dynamic. Now, before we get in too far, I will alert you that this promise has nothing to do with gaining wealth or some big archaeological discovery of Noah's Ark or the stone tablets of the commandments. It's not that kind of promise. This promise has more to do with understanding God's purposes in history. That is to say, if you can interpret the meaning of this promise correctly, you'll have a much clearer picture of what the Bible presents as God's plan for the human race. So our aim in this episode is to look at the text where this promise is found, place it within its historical context, we'll do some light exegetical work, and then we'll try to unpack the fullness of what this passage is really saying. The key passage is 2 Samuel chapter 7, and the promise has to do with King David and his descendants. But before we can dig into what this promise is saying and how certain elements of this promise are being lost in translation, we need to look at the background. We begin at the beginning of 2 Samuel. David is on the rise. The failed reign of King Saul has come to an end after Saul and his son were slain on Mount Gilboa. David was then initially crowned as king over the tribe of Judah, where he ruled for seven years from Hebron. The other tribes of Israel were ruled by a son of Saul named Ish-bosheth, but there ensued a civil war in which Ish-bosheth was killed, and David became king over all the tribes of Israel. One of David's first accomplishments as king was to conquer the city of Jerusalem, which at that moment had been occupied by the Jebusites. He conquered the city and renamed it Ir David, the city of David. David's next task was to defeat the arch enemies of Israel, the Philistines. And having accomplished this, he turned his attention towards building up the city of Jerusalem. Now, this was an ideal location for Israel's capital. 
being technically within the boundaries of Benjamin, but very close to the territory of Judah. Jerusalem was a place that all of the tribes would perceive as being a neutral location. All David had to do was bring in the ark and the tabernacle, and the twelve tribes would see this as an agreed-upon place for their capital. So everything was in place now for David. He'd been waiting 13 years for this moment. We remember that he was just 17 when Samuel anointed him, and he didn't really become king until he was 30. 2 Samuel chapter 7 begins by stating how great life was for David at this moment. He was living in a beautiful home in his new capital. All of his enemies had been defeated. But in David's mind, there was still one thing missing. So he invited his friend Nathan the prophet to come in for a consultation. And here's my paraphrase of what they talked about. David says, Nathan, here I am living in a beautiful house in a beautiful city. We brought in the ark. We brought in the tabernacle. The priests are offering sacrifices. But the ark is located in a tent, and it's surrounded by curtains. We need to build a permanent place for the ark and for the sacrifices. The tabernacle needs to become a proper temple. Nathan says to David, God is with you, and you've always had brilliant ideas. I say go for it. But that night... God speaks to the prophet Nathan through a dream and says, I want you to deliver a message to King David. And this is what God spoke. God said, building a temple was not my idea. I never told anyone to do this. I've never asked anyone, why haven't you built me a permanent house? This was something that never occurred to me, and I have been happy for my presence to move around inside of a tent. Now, David, let's look at your life. You were just a shepherd watching over your sheep, and I made you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you through all the struggles and challenges of these past 13 years, and now I have put you in a place of security. I am going to make your name great, and you will be counted as one of the greatest men on earth, and I'm going to establish my people Israel in this land. Now, you said that you want to build a house for me, but it's going to be the other way around. God said, I am going to build a house for you. Now, I'll stop with my paraphrase there and we'll read 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. This is what it says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in sum, this is what God said to David. First, you've told me that you want to build me a house. But I've never told anyone to do this, and the idea never occurred to me. However, I like this idea, 
and this is going to happen, but you're not going to be the one to do it. This is how it's going to work. God said, I'm going to make your name great on the earth. You will have a son who will build this temple that you've proposed to build, and I will establish the throne of your family forever. I may discipline your offspring when they sin, but I will never cut off your house like I did to Saul. And finally, your descendants shall have a sure kingdom, and they will rule on the throne of Israel forever. So our first question is, is this where the mistranslation happens? The answer is no. We don't find that until we get to the next section of this chapter. So let's go back to the text. Starting in 2 Samuel 17, the text reads, In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So, lo and behold, we come upon that phrase that is oh so difficult to translate. In verse 19, David is reflecting on this amazing promise that he has received. Who am I and what is my family that you have been so good to me? And if this weren't enough, you've spoken a great promise over my descendants. And then, in the height of his exuberance, David cries out to God, O Lord God, this is instruction for mankind. And that's the part that seems a little off. Is that really something to get so excited about, instruction for mankind? Praise the Lord, hallelujah, you've spoken to me an instruction. It just seems like something is missing there. So let's look to see if any of the other major translations capture this more effectively. The RSV and the NIV read, Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? The New American Standard reads, And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Wow. That really sounds like words of praise. Praise God, this is the custom of man. So it seems like all of these translations seem to miss the point. So let's take a quick look at the Hebrew to see why this phrase seems so difficult to translate. It's actually very simple. Vezot, Torat, Ha'adam. Three compound words. Vezot and this, Torat, which is the grammatical rendering of the word Torah, a word we all know, and then Ha'adam, of mankind. Bezot Torat Ha'adam. And this is the Torah of mankind. So the first tricky part of this is whether this is a declaration or a question. As the Hebrew text doesn't use question marks and periods, we don't really know for certain which one it is. Some translations frame it as a question, others as a statement, but that's really not the key issue here. The hard part is the word Torah. What does it mean in this phrase? Now, the word Torah is very common. It appears 221 times in the Old Testament, and it's most often translated as law or laws, 
and then less frequently as commandments or instructions. So what we're finding is that in most of our English translations, the translators have been very conservative about not venturing too far from these basic ideas. The problem is that David is using the word Torah in a more nuanced way that unfortunately is getting lost in our translations. And thus, we're left with this very wooden and uncompelling rendition of his exclamation. There's a dimension of the word Torah that goes beyond the idea of simple laws or rules. In a more nuanced fashion, the word Torah expresses the idea of a way or a path. For example, in Psalm 25:12, it says that Yahweh instructs mankind in the Torah or the path that he should choose. In Psalm 27:11, David says, "Teach me your way," meaning your Torah, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. And then in Psalm 86:11, he says, "Teach me your way," that is your Torah, so that I may walk in your truth. In this sense, Torah is not just about God's commandments. It's about understanding God's character, who he is and how he works. David does not just want to know God's rules. He wants to know God as a person, as a friend. And when he knows God in this intimate way, he will be able to discern how God operates, how he functions in his relationship with humanity. David's exclamation of excitement in 2 Samuel 7 is not about some new understanding of God's commandments or instructions. Rather, he shouts out in excitement because he has just received insight into the way God deals with people. Bezot Torat Hadam is not about praising God for his laws. It's about praising God for the beautiful and merciful ways that he deals with humanity. In this moment, David realizes that his family has been grafted into the promise that God had given to Abraham. God had told Abraham, in you will all the nations be blessed. In you will all of the families of the earth come to experience my goodness and my restoration. David now realizes that he is the next link in that chain. It is now through him that God's purposes for the human race will be accomplished. David's family will carry on the promise that was made to Abraham. Through David's seed will come blessing to all the nations of the earth. So by linking the promise that he had received with the promise that had been given to Abraham, David realizes that he and his family are now part of God's overarching promise for the human race. Through the seed of Abraham, which is now carried on in the family of David, all of the nations of the earth will receive blessing and salvation. This isn't just God's promise for David and his descendants. This is God's purpose for all human beings. And this isn't just about a moment in history or even a series of generations. This is something that will affect humanity forever. And now we understand why David was so excited. So can we capture this in translation? Probably not, but I think the best way to translate this verse would be something like this. Lord God, this is your master plan and purpose for all of humanity forever. 
And that is something to get excited about. So let's reflect on how all of this ties in with the theme of our podcast, which is theology and identity. The resounding message of this story is that David is the kind of person that Yahweh, the God of Israel, likes to honor. David is a man to whom God can reveal his deepest secrets and purposes and whom he can use to bring his plans into fulfillment. As we read through the story of David, we realize that he has a lot of character flaws, but in spite of this, God loved him deeply and blessed him in amazing ways. Over the past few episodes, we've had a glimpse into the character of David. We've seen that his motivation for serving Yahweh wasn't about what he could get from his God. Rather, it was about what he could give. We've seen that he was patient with the promises that God had given him. He waited 13 years to become king, and during this long season of testing and trial, he never tried to force God's hand. He never tried to move things along himself. But this doesn't mean that David wasn't a man of initiative. He had ideas of his own that he presented to God, and some of these even seemed to take Yahweh by surprise. David is not just a servant who waits for instructions on what he should do. He comes with his own ideas on how he can honor God and do things that will please him. In many ways, David sees his relationship with God as a partnership, and Yahweh certainly reciprocates. This is the kind of relationship with Yahweh that the Hebrew scriptures set up as a model. It's a challenge to know God, not just as a master, but as a friend and a partner. It was because David had chosen to relate to God in this way that God honored him with such a central role in the unfolding of his plans for humanity. And with that thought, We will bring this episode to a close. In our next episode, we will look at the life of David's son, Solomon, and we'll be asking the question, is this the son of whom Yahweh had spoken? I'm Dr. David Clark. I lecture in theology at the University of Roehampton in Southwest London. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I hope you will come back again.